0: however broken you may feel, you aren't, and that what is required is a different perspective and almost certainly a different belief system. What do you really want? I would spend quite some time actually clarifying the innermost aspirations and that inner purpose of the individual, which I think we all have. Beliefs are great, but hold them lightly you know be prepared to let them go they're not you they have got nothing to do with you they're just a construct that you've placed a little bit of your identity in what we do so easily is to use our imaginations to latch on to something that we don't want to happen and play it over and over again in our minds and that's called anxiety
1: I'm very familiar with, yes.
0: The <laughs> most powerful tool we have as human beings is the imagination, and we are using that against ourselves to create scenarios that we don't want. Now, that is a perfect definition of self harm. Remind yourself that sense of brokenness is simply a perception, it's not real. You cannot be broken.
2: Quick question When did you discover that you're a leader? that your actions matter to those that look up to you. You may be an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur innovating to change the world, or a CEO navigating a crisis, or a parent returning to work and learning to lead your career, your team, your children. There are many faces of leadership, and this is the podcast to explore them all. Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader with me, Maria Vorostovsky. I'm a headhunter and founder of HVO Search, where I help ambitious leaders hire their executive teams. My job today on this show is to help you discover your superpowers, to help you avoid making some of the same mistakes and to remind you that even if you do, perfection doesn't and shouldn't exist. Thank you so much for listening and please do subscribe and follow this podcast because it really helps others to discover these incredible stories. This show will challenge the way you think, and may even change your life. Chris,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I read your book, The Broken CEO, because it really caught my attention. And the very first thing I wanted to ask you is, why this title? I mean, we think of CEOs as powerful, powerful, capable,
0: why broken? Why broken, indeed. Um, Well, I I did tussle with the title because everyone I mentioned this to said, well, you you mustn't use a negative title in a book. (laughs) It must be positive. And I I think there's a lot to be said for positive thinking, a lot. Um, But I went with that because that's how some people feel. That's how they can feel in in the depths of, of struggle and apparent failure. Uh, They can feel a bit broken. I know this because um, not only through my own experience, but certainly through having worked with a a lot of CEOs and senior managers as an executive coach, uh, they they often come to me believing that they are broken and need fixing. And of course, as I say in the book, uh, no one's broken. They don't need fixing. But that's how they present, so that was the title of
1: the book. Hmm. So you say that nobody's broken. No. Is there a specific point when they come? Or have you seen any patterns as to when they end up working with you?
0: Yes, I I think uh, the pattern is that the old way of running their business or leading the organisation just doesn't work uh, anymore. and the more they try to push that modus operandi, the more they try to do, the less well it seems to work. And eventually they they throw their hands up and say, I've got to find another way. Who do I turn to? Um, because clearly they're not doing it on their own.
1: Mm. So when you say the old way, what do you mean by that?
0: The old way is, is very often... Um, It has elements of command and control in it, you know, Mm -hmm. an autocratic approach. Now, don't get me wrong, as I think I mentioned in the book, an autocratic leadership approach is absolutely the right one in certain circumstances, but not all circumstances. And one has to be able to adapt to the situation and to the people you're dealing with. Again, this is nothing new. This is referred to as situational leadership. But not many people are able to do it because they tend to identify with certain belief systems and they tend to uh, have practiced a particular way of leading that used to work but doesn't work anymore. I think people have changed. Certainly, I've seen it over my lifetime. Uh, If you go back 30 or 40 years, um, people expected to be told what to do. And and, and I'm, I'm generalizing hugely here. This didn't apply to everyone by any means, but a lot of people expected to be told what to do and expected to be a cog in the system, a cog in the machine. And um, things have changed. And you can see this particularly in the latest generation. And there's, there's a, a lot of comment on this at the moment that the... Uh, the latest generation—I forget which one it is—generation Gen Z. Z, Gen yes. Z. Okay, I don't know what we are going to do after Z, but uh, <laughs> Gen Z, it is. Um, they're not—they're not so interested in this. They want to do what they want to do, and I part—part part of me uh, rebels against that and says, "No, no, they got to fall into line." But I do—I I do get it. I absolutely get it because one of one of the premises that I work on more and more is that. Uh, the right way to go is to be found deeply buried in, in, in your own desires, your own aspirations, your own goals and, and dreams to the point where, and I've, I've written about this, I think, uh, perhaps somewhere else, that what you really want to do, with the emphasis on really, is probably the best guiding light for your life, um, and today, mm. you know, what do you really want to do? Because I think we we can very easily suffocate that and suppress it uh, and replace it with, well, what, what should I do? What ought I to do today? What would my parents expect me to do? What would my boss expect me to do? Um, and all of that is a frame of reference beyond yourself. It's all out there. But within you, I think I think within each of us, there is desire to go down a certain path, to explore certain things, to achieve certain things. And I think the more we can connect with that, um, the more in tune we'll be with the world outside. And in relation to Gen Z, I think, that they are more in tune than that with, with that guiding light, that inner guiding light, than perhaps I was at the same stage.
2: Mm.
1: And why do you think that is? Because that's certainly the case. I mean, this, this question is like, what do I want? Is much more common in the generation than in the previous ones.
2: Yeah.
1: Is it because the parents have been asking the children? Is it because, you know, there's a cultural movement? Like, where is this coming from?
0: I, I think it's all of those. Mm. I, I think there's, there's a, an, an evolution in mankind that demands it. It's also heavily supported by technology,
2: you know, mm. because we
0: don't need to worry about, generally, we don't need to worry about where our next meal is coming from. You know, that's a lot of that is taken care of. So Maslow's Pyramid, you know, the, the, the bottom two layers of that, mm-hmm. uh, they are far more robust than they were not so long ago, um, and and I think people now rightly have the luxury to say, well, I'm you know I'm not going to worry too much about where I'm going to get my next meal from. I'm going to do what I want.
1: Going back just to the CEOs that you end up working with, is there a pattern in the sense that you know they've they've realised that actually I'm not in the place where I'm supposed to be because this isn't necessarily what I wanted and then trying to unpack where these things have come from. Yes. And what is that?
0: Yeah. Um, I think in the case of entrepreneurs, let's take that as as an example. Um, Entrepreneurs start their entrepreneurial life, hopefully, hopefully, full of energy, full of hope, full of vision, purpose, and that that buzz they create attracts others to them, and they get things going. And I, I, I have a few people like this that I know where they're, they're running um, very, very energetic and, and thriving businesses. Um, but sooner or later, inevitably, they—they uh, they, at least the people I work with—they hit the buffers because they. Expect the business to grow and to change, but they don't necessarily expect or entertain the 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 possibility that they might have to change radically and grow into the new business. So uh, you know a a pretty obvious example of this, which I I highlight in the book, is where a uh, a CEO will will grow their enterprise to a certain point through, very often through the the capacity of their their intellects and their, their energy, they can do it. And they can keep tabs on everything that's going on. And they can do it fairly autocratically as well. You know, fairly command and control micromanaging. They know what's going on. But eventually they get to the point where they just can't keep tabs on everything anymore. So they're faced with a decision they may not see it like this, but there is a decision to be made. Do I carry on like this, struggling with this business that has grown around me and just try harder and harder and harder? Or do I let go and uh, allow other people the, the, uh, the wherewithal and the, uh, the delegation to take on all the responsibilities that I've been holding to myself? So there's a point at which they need to let go, and that that's a very very critical point. That's a make or break point. A lot of um, private equity investors recognise this phenomenon very clearly and will uh, quite ruthlessly take the uh, the <laughs> originating entrepreneur out out of the uh, the business and stick a professional manager in, in instead. Yeah, um, and that can be very difficult for the individual as well.
2: Mm.
1: In your book, you said leadership is often about doing less rather yes. than more. What did you mean by that?
0: Yeah, um, I think doing more in the face of uh, of difficulties can make the difficulties worse. Uh, so, for instance, if you've got an employee who is not doing what they what you want them to do, it's a, it's a very common reaction to Start to put the put pressure on them. Start to uh, performance manage them. Um, start to uh, scrutinise their every every activity, and that can be extremely counterproductive. You know, and again, this isn't rocket science. This is obvious. We've all seen this in operation. Um, the questions that people need to be asking when somebody isn't performing is: is there something that they would much better suited to be doing? Um, Is this the right place for them? And there ought to be ongoing conversations around that to see what can be done. Now, if somebody isn't performing in a role, there are two ways to go. You can either train them or you can move them to another role. And that other role might be beyond the confines of the organization. In other words, it's a termination of contract. Um, But that's fine too. You know, providing it's done in a compassionate way where uh, the best interests of all concerned are taken into account, that's a perfectly valid thing to do. Now, I see a lot of CEOs desperately trying to avoid that particular action because they don't want to be someone that sacks an employee. They don't like it. Um, the problem with avoiding that action is that it, just creates more and more difficulty down the line for the whole organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and the higher the uh, the level of the individual and the hierarchy is, the more trouble it creates.
1: Actually, what's interesting is that out of the CEOs that I interview, pretty much the top three regrets they have is not letting go of someone sooner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a uh, quote from a guy that used to run in... Uh, run part of Microsoft, a big chunk, and it goes something like, it's better to have a hole in your team than an a-hole in your team, <laughs> uh, which kind of says it as it is, mm-hmm. and I think that's very, very true. Uh, the wrong person in the team, and I've seen this so many times, can cause so much damage, um, and it erodes the, the culture within the team, and that spreads beyond the team itself to you know, potentially the whole organization. Uh, and all that, I say all, you know, I, I don't underestimate it, but what needs to be done was that that person needed to be moved out of the organization. And I actually, um, in the last few years, I've done a num- number of interim management roles as an interim general manager or CEO. And essentially the, the core of what I've had to do is to remove people that the, the current management didn't want to do. They agreed it needed to be done, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it.
2: Mm.
1: I suppose it's easier for someone external to come in and do that as opposed to having to do that yourself when you've built some sort yeah. of bonds. Yeah. And I think the one of the challenges of, of leadership is being able to Separate yourself to some extent as a person who has a relationship versus a leader of that specific business and having to make the decisions that are for the business's greater good.
0: Indeed, but what I, I think you can, you can take that one step further that if it's in the business's greatest, greatest good, it will also be in the individual's greatest good. Mm-hmm. You cannot, I, I haven't seen a relationship where one party benefits and the other doesn't. I don't think they exist. You know, if, if someone is in the wrong place, it's wrong for both parties, not mm-hmm. just for them. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the, the bit that some leaders miss uh, because they don't see that bigger picture. And that's very often compounded by a, 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 a wish to be liked. You know, they don't want to be seen to be the bogeyman and, and all of that. They they enjoy that the good relationships they've got, um, but in the end, that will work against you.
2: Mm.
1: And going to that point about wanting to be liked, what do you see? You know, how does that play out in the the broken CEO? Because that also has to come from somewhere.
0: Yes, well, that probably, like like many psychological patterns, can be created in. In childhood, um, my work as an executive coach isn't, isn't to uh, to get into kind of therapist role and identify that. Um, but I don't think it needs to be identified. I think it needs to be acknowledged and and then put to one side. Um, but the need the need to be liked, yeah, it's a very powerful thing, isn't it? Um, and if it's allowed to filter into every relationship, what it can do is to undermine the authenticity and the trust of that relationship. Well, initially the authenticity because you're not actually communicating what you feel mm-hmm. to the other person. You're inevit- inevitably, you're telling them what you think, they think, they want to hear. Mm.
1: So we're talking about understanding an individual where they're good at, what they're not good at, from a leadership perspective of, you know, potentially letting them go, what if the leader themselves need to go through that process to understand, well, you know, talking about, well, you know, something's not working out and I'm just trying harder and harder. How do you go through that process to realise, you know, do you need to be in a different role, for right. example?
0: yeah, very good question, that. And it, it comes back to the principle of what do you really want? Uh, so I, I would spend quite some time actually um, clarifying the, the innermost uh, aspirations and, if you like, the purpose, that inner purpose of the individual, which I think we all have. I think there's all, that, that, that all of us have some little spark that we want to express in some way. Many of us are not for whatever reason, not able to express it fully. In the case of some CEOs, they're not expressing it at all. And the right thing to do is for them to go off and do something else. But that requires, you know, quite a little bit of reflection and soul searching before we get to that point. Uh, but it does happen, yeah.
1: Hmm. I'd like to explore what your definition of a leader is.
0: Um, I think a leader is, is someone that can excite people to do things they didn't even think they could do. I think that's what it boils down to. Good, good things, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, although there are plenty of examples in history of, mm. of, uh, of the other. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about inspiring other people. And it's not so much through a, an intentional inspiration, It's just through the the buzz that you give off with your ideas. And I remember this very well as a a young, in my early 20s, I joined a startup in Cambridge uh, run by three ex-Cambridge PhD students, uh, super bright, very ambitious. And I remember I was was in the lab working until I was an engineer in those days, uh, working till maybe 2 a.m. Um, regularly uh, because I just loved everything about it and and I loved the work that I was doing and I only I could only get to work on it because of the environment that those people those founders had created so I think another very important aspect of leadership is that of creating the right environment for people to thrive Um, and that's exactly what they did through their their ideas, through the resources that they gave me, through the trust that they put in me. And that leads on to another interesting uh, thing, I I think, which um, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, but it's certainly in one of my uh, leadership programs. And that is the idea of of a leader as a gardener. Mm. So the organization as a garden. And that. Um, contrasts greatly with other well-known metaphors for organizations. You know, there's the machine metaphor for an organization, which I think can be quite destructive mm-hmm. uh, because then everyone becomes a cog in a well-oiled machine. Um, the other one is the, the military uh, metaphor. Uh, but then you're out to beat someone else. You know, there's a heavy element of competition, as there is in the sporting metaphor. But with the gardening metaphor, uh, the beauty of it is that uh, a, there's no competition in it. You're just out to be the best you can be. And you allow the plants to do their own thing. You plant a seed in the full knowledge that that seed has all the intelligence it needs to grow into a, a beautiful bush or flower. You know, An acorn, which is, is, is a big seed, but it's not that big, that can grow into an enormous oak. And everything it needs to know to do that is in that one seed. So if you compare the flowers to people in an organization, if you've got the right people there, you don't need to be telling them what to do all the time. In fact, Steve Jobs said we don't hire good people to tell them what to do, we hire good people to tell us what to do, which is the right way around. And it comes down to the the other point of that we should all be looking to hire the very best people we can find, and people that are better than us in certain departments. So the garden is, is uh, just a couple more words on the garden. Um, the gardener, all the gardener does is to is, is to make the environment conducive to the best possible growth. And the gardener does that purely but in fact by um, by paying attention to the four elements fire which is light obviously they've got to have light water earth and air and the gardener's prime focus is on creating that that environment out of those four elements so that the plants can thrive and i think there's a lot to be said for organisations, for, for leaders to treat organisations in, in that way. Fortunately, I'm not alone. The very famous American general, uh, Stanley McChrystal, says pretty much exactly the same thing, that the garden metaphor is the, the optimal one for, uh, for organisational leadership.
1: I like that very much in terms of allowing... The seeds to express themselves and, you know, providing the right conditions, the soil, the sunlight, the the water to be able for them to really
2: flourish yeah.
1: and to thrive. I suppose also there's the element of pruning that's required to allow the good <laughs> seeds to come through, which is what we were talking about earlier yeah. too. Yes. And what would you say is the the number one quality for an effective leader? What's the most essential?
0: Well... I, I, could, I could borrow a quote from uh, Colin Powell, uh, the um, chief of staff way back in, uh, I don't know which American president he uh, was, but a highly decorated soldier who was asked that question in a, a press conference. And without hesitation, he said, trust. And I, I don't think there's much more that you can say about it. I think trust Uh, underlines and and it creates the foundation for relationships. If you have no trust you can't have a relationship at all. If you take trust out of society, society breaks down instantly. You have to have trust. Um, The challenge is to recognize that that trust is not just about the other person's behavior. The, The the, the essence of it is held by both parties. So I have to trust in myself and I have to trust in the other person. And I have to be very careful about judging the trustworthiness of the other person. And I think the starting point needs to always to be full trust until you're, you know, it's proved otherwise.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because if, if you go into a relationship without trust, um, then it it will skew it very, very quickly. It's a bit like, coming back to the garden metaphor, it's a little bit like um, planting a seed, allowing it to germinate, and then digging it up to find out how it's getting on. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't work. No. Uh, So yeah, I would say trust. Um, There are certain things that, I mean, that's necessary fundamentally necessary, but not sufficient. There are other things that you need and probably the, the most important of those would be vision. Um, the, the leader's vision is the, the thing that galvanizes e- the, the leader and everyone around them into action. And they have to hold the vision. Um, and in fact, I, I tell people, look, if, if there's anyone around you that has a clearer and more powerful vision of where you're going than you do, you need to hand over to them immediately because they, they need to be the leader. Mm. Uh, so in other words, um, make sure that your vision, that you are really on top of your vision and that it, it resonates for you and inspires you
1: mm. and
0: hence inspires everyone around you.
1: I think vision is the, the most quoted quality that I have discovered in this podcast. I feel that has been almost mentioned by everyone, yeah. maybe with one or two exceptions. But I thought you were going to self, say self-awareness.
0: <laughs> well, I, I can say more about that.
1: <laughs> because for me, with unless pleasure. you really understand yourself, it's very then difficult to understand other people and how societies kind of form in general.
0: It is, um, but there are levels of self-awareness. And there is the self-awareness in the sense of the, uh, um, the psychological tests um, and the, the, the kind of makeup of one's, uh, one's character and personality. And that's necessary, but it doesn't stop there. It goes well beyond that because our, our personalities and our egos uh, are only a small part of who we are uh, in, in reality. And... The, it it really uh, is incumbent on the leader to be aware of the inner workings of their their their, their minds um, at all times, and this is where mindfulness comes in. Uh, mindfulness is, has been hijacked by all kinds of commercial concerns these days, and uh, is generally thought to be lis- listening to a. Uh, uh, a meditation app or something like that um, unfortunately uh, and inconveniently it's it's not like that at all um, it, it really comes down to a a profound awareness in every moment of one's own inner dynamics and one's own inner dynamics being in, uh, influenced constantly by everything around you know perceptions that are coming in. Um, and for, for me, that's that focus on the present moment is greatly helped by the understanding that there actually is no such thing as time. Time is, as Einstein said, a stubborn illusion. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And we can get a sense of it not existing by realizing that there is no past and there is no future. And I use those words very carefully. There was a past and there will be a future, but there is no past. And what we tend to do so easily is to drag what we think is the past into the present and allow it to pollute and dilute the, the fullness of the present moment. And... Um, and we, through what we miss as a result, we tend to start struggling and end up feeling broken. <laughs> <laughs> the, the past, what we, we do so easily is to mistake the past, which has no existence whatsoever, with a memory of the past, which is something completely different. And we attribute reality and currency to the past when it cannot have any, or or rather to the memory of the past when the memory cannot be and is not the past. It's just an artifact of it.
1: Mm. I'm a huge believer in that as well, in, in the sense that there is no time. But when we live in our current Western world where... Deadlines are a thing where, you know, the calendar, you know, the new holidays, like everything is 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 measured in how many days or how many seconds things take. So to some extent, it's a, a human construct yep. that we have imposed upon ourselves and have somehow found ourselves almost stuck within it. Because in order for us to to process the infinity of time and our own existence, it's very difficult to not find some kind of solace in the structure of time.
0: Yes. And, and this is where the, 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 the true practice of mindfulness comes, comes into play, is a constant reminder to oneself that there is only this moment and that nothing else exists. Absolutely. We have the option to delve into our memories, and that's very important, you know, for basic survival purposes. You know, we 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 need to be. I wouldn't have got here today without my memory. Um, we need that, but we don't have to live in it. Similarly, and there's there's a very good example of uh, of using the, the the other end of the spectrum, um, the future. We tend to use our imaginations. So imagination and memory are closely linked, but memory tends to be more fixed. Imagination is fluid and we can do what we like in our imaginations. We can create anything we like. But what tends to happen, and in fact, as I, I point out in the book, um, everything, everything in this room, everything around us, apart from those things that are living, the flowers and the, and the people, everything is a, an output of the human imagination over thousands of years. To get us here. But what we do so easily is to use our imaginations to um, latch onto something that we don't want to happen and play it over and over again in our minds. And that's called anxiety.
1: I'm very familiar with, yes.
0: <laughs> so we're using our most powerful tool. most powerful tool we have at our, at our, at our disposal as human beings is the imagination. And we are using that against ourselves to create scenarios that we don't want. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a perfect def- definition of self-harm. And ultimately, uh, you know, if you do it enough, um, I've read plenty of, of papers suggesting that, or well, not suggesting, but, but showing evidence that that will ultimately lead to various forms of um, mental ill health,
1: I have only recently started to really notice the effects of stress and how we almost create our own negativity. And then that leads to disease and illness. It's funny that I'm coughing at the same time that I'm saying that. <laughs> but um, but that's a, a fast... And I think you mentioned quite a lot of studies in your book as well with regards to um, what happens when we are stressed and you know the consequences of that on. on well,
0: yes. I mean, the, the um, both our our, our mental f- bodies and our our physical body are inextricably intertwined. Um, I don't I don't think Descartes did us any favors by suggesting that they were completely separate. I I believe it was Descartes that that came up with the, the mind body uh, division. Um, interestingly, in, in Eastern philosophy, they, they make no distinction. no distinction at all between the two uh, because they are so uh, so closely connected to each other. So from that point of view, it's no surprise that if you allow any kind of um, a, a mental self-abuse or self-harm to persist, ultimately, it's going to show up uh, in, in one's emotional body and then ultimately in your physical body and you know this this isn't woo woo stuff there there are some pretty um uh, rigorous papers written on the subject showing a direct link between certain forms of physical illness and chronic stress chronic anxiety
1: no i'm i'm, I'm a huge believer in that and you can mm. really see it too and i think as As we age as well, and that accumulates, and you also begin to realize what we're talking about, you know, who am I doing this for? Is it for me or is it for someone else? And all of a sudden, as you get to that stage where you you are beginning to step into, you know, more senior positions or, you know, having to then either step into CEO or, you know, sort of senior managers, you know, all of that begins to to accumulate as well. So I just find that Mm. fascinating and how it becomes even more important to really focus on your internal state. Yes. But what, you know, just got me thinking in terms of, you know, in the West we have this separation between sort of the mind and the body and then the Eastern philosophies don't. And, you know, arguably kind of our Western world is setting the standard in terms of, you know, how businesses should be run, what's effective, what's not. And this idea, especially, you know, not so recent past that, you know, the emotion, the mental state has no place in the workplace or in the boardroom, how, you know, you are one person at home where you can show your vulnerabilities and how you're a different person, you you know, turn up, you put your suit on, you know, do your hair, you know, do whatever it takes. And then you come in presented with, with a face that you show, you know, the better sides of you or strength and sort of infallibility is what's required. What are your thoughts on that? Like keeping, I suppose, keeping emotions out of the boardroom? Well,
0: um, great question. I was speaking uh, just last week to a senior um, female leader in a, a, a large American corporation um, who who's uh, coming to the, the end of a, a, a program that, that I've run for her. And she said that she was hugely relieved after decades of doing exactly what you've just described, putting this face on, um, and eschewing the emotional, her emotional side, in the pursuit of emulating the male leaders that, <laughs> that, are, that are in the, the organization, um, she suddenly realized that not only is it not necessary, but it's not necess- not particularly good thing either. And She's felt a a huge sense of relief at uh, the the removal of that requirement, which she placed on herself. Nobody else did it for her. She looked at the situation and clearly decided, perhaps subconsciously, perhaps not even consciously, that she needed to adopt these behaviours and she needed to to keep her emotions and her feelings out of the, the equation altogether. And it was tough for her to do because that's not her. Mm-hmm. You know and we're not talking about um, wearing your emotions on your sleeves all the time and, and uh, you know externalizing everything that you feel. It's not about that at all, but it is about acknowledging everything that you are. Um, and she it, I, I think the, th- what changed her understanding of this was something that I'm pretty sure is mentioned in the book. Um, And that's the work of a a neurologist um, back in the 80s or 90s who demonstrated through a series of meta-studies that um, injuries to the brain that resulted in a lack of feeling in the individual um, meant that not only could they not feel, but they couldn't make decisions either. Now, that was a big eye-opener for me because as an engineer, I imagined for you know, the first part of my career that um, logic was everything mm-hmm. and that uh, organisations needed to be the kind of well-oiled machine that I was designing um, and that anything else would work properly. Well, well-oiled machine organisations don't work properly either, as I discovered. And then I came across this this particular... Uh, evidence which I think was first published or may have been published in um, Daniel Goleman's book on emotional intelligence and that was unequivocal proof that you make decisions on the basis of how you feel not how you think Mm. now that's not to say you don't need to think it's not to say you don't need to do your homework do your analysis and all of that you do need to do that but all that does is change the way that you feel towards the issue at hand. If you remove that feeling, you will have no decisions to the point where you can't even decide which restaurant to go to.
1: Mm. I remember reading a study, and I don't know if it's the same one, and it was a case study about a woman who had, was probably in a car accident, but she had some extensive brain damage that allowed her to have all the faculties. She could walk, she could speak. And the part of her brain that was damaged was her emotional center. And they were monitoring this woman to understand what will happen to her. And she could not make decisions. She would go to a supermarket and she could literally yeah. not choose which cereal to buy yeah. because it was so inextricably linked to her ability to make that decision. Yeah. When I came across that, it's like, you know, emotions have a bad rep, and emotions are quite frequently also attributed to women, whereas we all experience them. It's just how perhaps they are expressed may be slightly different, but how important emotions are in our biological bodies that govern everything that we do. Yeah. And this is my point about this division between the emotions or the mind and... The body itself, and mm. they're not; they they're completely linked.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, yes, I, I think th- this was a big breakthrough for me. It was certainly a breakthrough for this this woman, my client. Um, and I, I have absolutely no doubt that her style of leadership will change radically as a result. Just knowing that and giving her herself permission to Be all that she is, not just a a chunk of of her that she thinks is acceptable to the organisation. And if that then makes her incompatible with the organisation, that doesn't matter. The most important thing is that she's being compatible with herself.
1: Mm. (laughs) I mean, this is it, isn't it? Where. There's part of self-awareness and self-understanding in terms of what you're good at, you know, what your strengths are, you know, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, and trying to find a way of matching that with the company that you go and work with. And I think that's the the magic. And in the past where people were expected to work, you know, in the same company until they retired versus now, I mean... I think Simon Sinek the other day was talking about how, you know, Generation Z, you know, expected to jump from one job, you know, to another every year. Not that I necessarily think that that's a good idea either. But this idea that we have a lot more options, at least in our kind of immediate Western, you know, world where you do not have to stick with the same place. You can find somewhere which resonates more with your values and your skills you just need to assess and understand them first yeah and also not be afraid to say actually this is not a place for me and to find something that fits better
0: yes absolutely
1: do you think that it is expected more now to be more transparent more human so to speak as a leader
0: yes Uh, without without doubt um now this brings in a very interesting, uh, very uh, topical debate at the moment about vulnerability.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I've given this some thought and reflection, I've, I've read quite a lot about it. Um, and I find myself uh, reacting against the idea of vulnerability um, simply because, well, A, that the meaning of it, it means to be open to being wounded. Right. Be open to wounded.
1: Is that how we perceive vulnerability as well? As in, when I say we, do you feel that's an accurate description of what people mean by vulnerability, you know, visible vulnerability in, you know, as a leader, for example?
0: I, what I suspect is that we are conflating vulnerability with authenticity. I see. Uh, authenticity... If you look at the root of that, that's all about self-reference. You know, the auto is self, um, and it's about being complete within oneself, which leads into integrity. Um, but vulnerability is, I think, in, in within oneself, one needs to be vulnerable in the sense that one needs to acknowledge what's going on and the impact it's having on one and integrate that into who you are and not deny it, push it away and sweep it under the carpet. Um, but I don't th- I'm, I'm not a fan of externalizing our emotions on a, on a real-time basis. And I don't think that's really what people want from their leaders. I think what people want from their leaders are, are those that can stand firm when the going gets tough, uh, or, as uh, Colin Powell said, um, look bright and energetic when you're feeling tired and want to go to sleep. Um, look satisfied when you're feeling hungry. You know, all, all of those things. You, you need to present almost an ideal, and that's part of the vision. You know, the vis- a vision is always an ideal, it's a dream. It may manifest. But the chances are it'll manifest in a different way from the dream that you're holding or that your dream will adapt as time passes. But it's an ideal. Mm -hmm. And I think leaders have to represent an ideal. And if you look at the great leaders of the, I won't say the 21st century, but certainly the 20th century, I I think they, they had a vision. They knew what they wanted and they stood firm. And they did not appear, to me anyway, to be particularly vulnerable, Mm. other than some of them getting assassinated. (laughs) Mm. But that's a different thing.
1: Talking about representing the ideal, and I wonder if the ideal has changed as well, because through anecdotal stories of, you know, for example, we we had someone on the show who was talking about, you know... um, a CEO or a senior leader that she was working with who was going through something really difficult. And she encouraged him to come forward and to talk about that. So to some extent, be vulnerable and expose some of his weaknesses and, you know, showing this is how he went through the situation. And as a result, the team was so grateful for him kind of explaining that situation and showing his vulnerability and showing that he's more of a, a human being and much more relatable and as a result, the team camaraderie and the respect for this person increased.
0: Okay, but was that done in retrospect? Or was that done in the moment?
1: I don't know. I think it was done in the moment.
0: So was he externalizing his, his, his perceived, perceived weakness within himself as it manifested?
1: I'm not sure if it was perceived as a weakness because I think it was an external event that happened. Right. It was less about oh I did this mistake and this is how I've uh, arrived to it. I think it was a personal situation that happened in you know to him that has made him feel emotional, distressed, yeah. upset.
0: But I'm I'm I mean I I'm, I would be all for relating that as a an example of how one approaches adversity. But to do it at the time in the moment as it's unfolding and to be externalizing the, uh, perhaps the indecision, the anxiety uh, and and saying to everyone, look, this is a terrible situation and I don't know how to deal with it. I, I would find that a, potentially destabilizing within a team. Mm. If they were to say, I don't know how to deal with it, but we're going to find a way through, that's another matter. But there again, he's she's holding the vision. We're going to get through. That's the important bit. And that's not vulnerable.
1: So do leaders always have to have the answer?
0: No, absolutely not. Um, and I tell many, many of my people... Some of the best things, one of the best things you can say is, "I don't know." You know, particularly when people start relying on you for having answers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you go and find out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or was it ask, ask Uncle Google?
0: <laughs> yeah, or or whatever. Um, and there are various stages of coaching. What I think I described in the book, where you you, you take people um, through a, 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 it's a bit of a process, I suppose, in order to make them more self uh well self-reference, self-reliance, mm-hmm. you know, finding the answer from within or or at least finding the answer on their own. Now that's not to say that there isn't a place for discussion and finding answers collectively. Um, but very often people can become over reliant on someone who has all the answers. Mm-hmm. And no one has all the answers and I don't know Either to group, the group of people you're leading, or the same phrase, I don't know, to yourself, can be um, immensely liberating, because we don't know. You know, particularly today, uh, that this whole time that we're living through is characterized by the uh, the acronym that I mentioned in the book, VUCA.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, there's volatility, complexity. Uh, sorry, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity all around us. Um, you you don't deal with that by pretending to know.
1: After reading your book, I wrote a post on LinkedIn because at the same time as reading your book, I was watching Gabby Dollhouse. And you probably don't know what it is because your kids are not toddlers. <laughs> what? Um, it's a children's TV show. And I was sort of, it was like 5.45 in the morning and my kids were watching while I was sort of trying to have like a a quick nap at that time in the morning. And I just heard this, you know, her saying, it's like, I don't know yet. And it really woke me up. And I guess it just connected the two things together. And it's just, it is such a powerful thing to say because First of all, if you already have the answer, there is no curiosity. There is no other way of of looking at a problem. There's no relying on other people. Like, why have a team if you can't rely on them or ask for their opinions? You know, why only consult your own very, very biased view? You know, you need to have that diversity of thought. And if you're constraining yourself by having all the answers... You're really not seeing, you know, you, you have your blind spots. And I just thought that was really powerful. And the fact that she added yet at mm. the end, I thought that was good, for, at least from a, a lesson to the kids in terms of, well, you don't have to have the answers, but you can be curious enough to find that out.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm. And, and not knowing is is, is divergent, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's it opens up infinite possibilities
1: Mm. I guess it's like being bored as well isn't it yeah where you know you you need that and going back to the sort of you know the the mindfulness of of sort of sitting in the discomfort either of not knowing or sitting in the discomfort of I don't have anything to do where you have to sort of let things come to you or to take the time Mm. To take the time for the answer to kind of float up, or for you to have it, you know, connect the dots in a different way.
0: Yes, um, and that's right. And that's a that's a, a living process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas just plucking a an answer or a belief system, because they're the same thing, and applying that to whatever's in front of you, is a very dead process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very algorithmic, um, and. That's why I and I find it interesting the you know the big debate about theism, atheism and agnosticism. I find that um, in essence there is no difference between the believer and the non-believer.
1: Really, in what way?
0: Well, the, the be- they because they both believe in something. Right. Right. The atheist believes in what they believe in, mm-hmm. uh, and and. and a non-existence of a deity. The believers believe in a deity, but they're both belief systems. The agnostic who sits in the middle, or maybe up here or down there, mm-hmm. um, doesn't believe anything at all because they say, I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the evidence that I have I, is not sufficient for me to say one or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where I, I like to sit and I like to... Um, Be comfortable there as far as I can in not knowing. Now this irritates my wife sometimes because she accuses me of sitting on the fence (laughs) but as long as you've got a pillow to sit on you can see both sides and you can see much further.
1: Mm. It's true and you can begin to formulate your opinion on more evidence as opposed to just polarising yourself into one or the other.
0: Now beliefs are great but hold them lightly. You know, be prepared to let them go. They're not you. They've got nothing to do with you. They're just a construct that you've perhaps placed a little bit of your identity in, um, but let them go. Now, another thing that characterizes the present time is a, uh, is a polarization of view. You know, we can see this all around us mm-hmm. at a, a, a micro level, at a global level. Uh, opinions are polarized. And people are amassing at one pole or the other in order to fight the other.
1: This, you know, you're you're talking about that when the timing is really right for this as well, because for me, it feels like that's what starts conflict so much. Oh, yeah. And the media has a lot to say in this because it is beneficial for them to polarize people into one camp or the other. And, you know, talking about, you know, social media or posting any kind of controversial topics to try to get attention because it does get attention Yes, because, you know, people feel so passionate about one or the other. But I think for me, the danger is, is when there is no debate any longer Mm. where it's like, well, that's my belief and that's your belief, and there is no way to find a third perspective yeah. or come in the middle or, you know, to, you know, change them altogether. And I feel like that's quite dangerous. Oh,
0: terribly dangerous. Mm. Terribly dangerous. In fact, this we live in dangerous times at the mm. moment. Um, and, and, yes, you're absolutely right. That That's what it is. And it's all because we are being – we believe that it is right to to hold – strong opinions. And actually, it really isn't that necessary and it really isn't that helpful because we are not our opinions, we're human beings. The life behind the opinion is far more important than whatever opinion you happen to be holding. Mm. And the, the re, I, I think one of the reasons that we, we get stuck in this is because we invest our identity in those belief systems. And when you do that, they become part of you. They're very difficult to extricate. So that when somebody challenges that opinion, they're challenging you, not the opinion, they're challenging you, and that becomes an existential threat. Mm -hmm. Even at a subconscious level, that's really threatening. So what do you do? You fight tooth and nail. So yeah, it it is very dangerous. It's very well documented in, in Eastern philosophy um, in, in terms of the mind being comprising four elements um, one element is, is memory one is intellect and the other is identity which you might call ego but it's, it's, it's loosely ego so you've got memory, identity and, and, and intellect and the intellect uh, intellect is like a, a, a sharp knife it's able to dissect, to analyze, to cut open. So it's, it, it can cause harm. And, you know, we talk about people having a razor-sharp intellect or a rapier-like mind. Um, we've got that. We've got the belief system. The belief system is held in memory. So it's not present. It's something in the past. And and in terms of what we were discussing earlier, it has no real existence. Mm -hmm. But because we are identifying with that belief system held in memory, the job of the intellect is to defend that. And so we see some very good examples of very fine intellects um, defending to the hilt Mm -hmm. their belief systems um, and, and attempting to do great damage to anyone else's belief system. Those are only three of the aspects of uh, of mind in the Eastern system. The the fourth aspect is that of intelligence. Now, intelligence is not intellect. It's much, much more than that. Intellect can only operate on memory, on data in memory, which is, by definition, of the past. You know, because as soon as something is in memory, it's already happened. Mm It's gone in reality. So those three aspects of mind do not exist in the present moment. The only one that does is the intelligence. And that's a far, far greater con- uh, concept altogether and um, has both uh, individual and um, collective aspects to it. Um, I've gone at great length, but probably, but best does. not to here. Uh, But the point being that we are using our minds in a very, very limited way when we get into those kinds of of division of of belief.
1: Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for CEOs, leaders, entrepreneurs when they do feel broken?
0: Uh, Well, read the book is the first one. Um, (laughs) Remind yourself that sense of brokenness is simply a perception. It's not real. You cannot be broken. That existential, all-encompassing sense of being can't be broken. And I I know that from personal experience and from working with a lot of other people as well. So however broken you may feel, you aren't. And what is required is a different perspective and almost certainly a different belief system Mm -hmm. or rather a lack of belief system. There is generally a need to to weaken the link between belief and the individual because a lot of the people I I work with um, suffer from believing things which in essence are not true.
1: Where can people find you? Uh,
0: they can find me online. If you Google Chris Pierce, oh, Pierce with an S. Uh, if you Google the uh, the um, the Broken CEO, um, my website is chrispierce.co.uk. It's a good place to find me, uh, but it's Pierce with an S, so it's not the the, the the usual English spelling.
1: Chris, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Such a pleasure to talk to you and just fascinating to hear your insights and perspective so
2: thank you
0: oh it's my pleasure maria and thank you very much for the opportunity
2: thank you thank you so much for joining me here on anatomy of a leader what did you discover in this episode i'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments on youtube or reviews on apple podcasts and if you haven't already hit that subscribe or follow buttons and i'll see you next week